Chapter 6 of The Call of the Wildflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt. Chapter 6 The Open Downland. Open hither, open hence. Scarce a bramble weaves a fence. Meredith When speaking of some Sussex water meadows, I mentioned as one of their many delights the views which they offer of the never-distant downs. The charm of these chalk hills is to me only inferior to that of real mountains. There are times, indeed, when, with clouds resting on the summits or drifting slowly along the combes, one could almost imagine himself to be in the true mountain presence. I have watched, on an autumn day, a long sea of vapour rolling up from the weald against the steep northern front of the downs, while their southern slopes were still basking in sunshine, and scarcely less wonderful than the clouds themselves are the cloud shadows that may often be seen chasing each other across the wide open tracts which lie in the recesses of the hills. Majestic mountains, exalted promontories, were among the descriptions given of the downs by Gilbert White. What we now prize in them is not altitude, but spaciousness. In Rosamond Marriott Watson's words, Broad and bare to the skies, the great down country lies. Its openness, with the symmetry of the free curves and contours into which the chalk shapes itself, is the salient feature of the range, and to this may be added its liberal gift of solitude and seclusion. Even from the babble of Brighton, an hour's journey on foot can bring one into regions where a perpetual armistice day is being celebrated, with something better than the two minutes of silence snatched from the townsfolk's day of din. The downs are also open in the sense of being free, to a very great extent, from the enclosures which in so many districts exclude the public from the land. In some parts, unfortunately, the abominable practice of erecting wire fences is on the increase among sheep farmers. But generally speaking, a naturalist may here wander where he will. Of all the flowering plants of the downs, the gorse is at once the earliest and the most impressive. No spectacle that English wildflowers can offer, when seen en masse, excels that of the numberless furze bushes on a bright April day. There is then a vividness in the gorse, a depth and warmth of that deep gold colour beloved by Rossetti, which far surpasses the glazed metallic sheen of a field of buttercups. It is pure gold, in bullion, the palpable wealth of Croesus, displayed not in flat surfaces, but in bars, ingots, and spires, bow behind bow, distance on distance, with infinite variety of light and shade, and set in strong relief against a background of sombre foliage. Thus it has the appearance, in full sunshine, almost of a furnace, a reddish underglow and heart of flame, which is lacking even in the broom, to creep within one of these gorse temples when illumined by the sun is to enjoy an ecstasy both of colour and of scent. 
With the exception of the firs, the downland flowers are mostly low of stature, as befits their exposed situation. A small but free people, inhabiting the wind-swept slopes and coombs, and well requiting the friendship of those who visit them in their fastnesses. One of the earliest and most welcome is the spring whitlow grass, which abounds on anthills high up on the ridges, forming a dense growth like soft down on the earth's cheek. Here it hastes to get its blossoming done before the rush of other plants, its little reddish stalk rising from a rosette of short leaves and bearing the tiny terminal flowers with white deeply cleft petals and anthers of yellow hue. Its near successor is the equally diminutive mousia, Cerastium semidecandrum, a white petal plant of a deep dark green, viscous and thickly covered with hairs. When summer has come, the flowers of the downs are legion, yellow bird's foot trefoil and horseshoe vetch, milkwort pink, white or blue, fragile rock rose, graceful dropwort, salad burnet, squincency wort, and a hundred more, of which one of the fairest, though commonest, is the trailing silverweed, whose golden petals are in perfect contrast with the frosted silver of the foliage. But the special ornament of these hills, known as the Pride of Sussex, is the round-headed rampion, a small, erect, blue-bonneted flower, which is no round-head in the Puritan sense, but rather of the gay company of cavaliers. Abundant along the downs from Eastbourne to Brighton, and still further to the west, it is a plant of which the eye never tires. But it is the orchids that chiefly draw one's thoughts to downland when midsummer is approaching. Have you seen the bee orchis? Is then the question that is asked, and to wander on the lower slopes at that season without seeing the bee orchis would argue a tendency to absent-mindedness. I used to debate with myself whether the likeness to a bee is real or fanciful, till one day, not thinking of orchids at all, I stopped to examine a rather strange-looking bee which I noticed on the grass, and found that the insect was a flower. That so far settled the point, but I still think the fly orchis is the better imitation of the two. The early spider orchis is native on the eastern range of the Downs, near the lonely hamlet of Telscombe, and in a few other localities in the heart of the hills, where, unless one has luck, and I had none, the search for a small flower on those far-stretching slopes is like the proverbial hunt for a needle in a hayloft. The only noticeable object on the hillside was an apparently dead sheep, about a hundred feet below me, lying flat on her back, with hoofs pointing rigidly to the sky. But as it was Orcus, not Ovis, that I was in quest of, I was about to pass on when I saw a shepherd, who had just come round a shoulder of the down, uplift the sheep and set her on her legs, whereupon, to my surprise, she ambled away as if nothing had been amiss with her. I learned from the shepherd that such accidents are not uncommon, and that having once turned turtle, the sluggish creature, as mankind has made her, would certainly have perished unless he had chanced to come to the rescue. When I told the good man what had brought me to that unfrequented coombe, he said, 
as country people often do, that he did not take much notice of wildflowers. Nevertheless, after inquiring about the appearance of the orchids, he volunteered to note the place for me if he chanced to see them. Then, as we were parting, he called after me, and if you see any more sheep on their backs, I'll thank you if you'll turn them over. This I willingly promised, on the principle not only of humanity, but that one good turn deserves another. Next season, perhaps, our friendly compact may be renewed. The dingle in which Telscombe lies is rich in flowers. In the May time of which I am speaking, there was a profusion of hound's tongue in bloom, and a good sprinkling of that charming upland plant, deserving of a pleasanter name, the field fleawort, but of what I was searching for, no trace. I had walked into the spider's parlour, but the spider was not at home. More fortunate was a lady who on that same day brought to the Hove exhibition a flower which she had casually picked on another part of the downs where she was taking a walk. Sitting down for a rest, she saw an unknown plant on the turf. It was a spider orchis. Much less unaccommodating to me was the musk orchis, a still smaller species which grows in several places where the northern face of the downs is intersected by as below ditchling beacon by deep-cut tracks. They can hardly be called bridle paths that slant upward across the slope. I was told by Miss Robinson of Saddlescombe, to whose wide knowledge of Sussex plants many flower lovers beside myself have been indebted, that she once picked a musk orchis from horseback as she was riding along the hillside. It is a sober-garbed little flower, with not much except its rarity to signalise it, but an orchis is an orchis still. There is no member of the family that has not an interest of its own. Many of them are locally common on these hills, to wit, the early purple, the fly, the frog, the fragrant, the spotted, the pyramidal, and most lovely of all, the dwarf orchis. Also the twayblade, the ladies' tresses, and one or two of the heliborines. The green man orchis, not uncommon in parts of Surrey and Kent, will here be sought in vain. But the downs are not wholly composed of grassy sheep walks and firs dotted wastes. They include many tracts of cultivated land, where, if we may judge from the botanical records of the past generation, certain cornfield weeds, which are now very rare, such as the mouse tail and the hare's ear, were once much more frequent. It is rather strange that the improved culture which has nearly eliminated several interesting species, should have had so little effect on the charlock and the poppy, which still colour great squares and sections of the downs with their rival tints, their yellow and scarlet rendered more conspicuous by having the quiet tones of these rolling uplands for a background. In autumn, when most of the weald and flowers are withering, the chalk hills are still decked with gentians and other late-growing kinds and the persistence, even into sere October, of such children of the sun as the rampion and the rock rose is very remarkable. The autumnal aspect of the downs is indeed as beautiful as any, for there are then many days when a blissful calm seems to brood over the great combes and hollows, and the fields lie stretched out like a many-coloured map, 
the rich browns of the ploughlands splashed and variegated with patches of yellow and green. Then, too, one sees and hears overhead the joy flight of the rooks and daws as round and round they circle, higher and higher, like an inverted maelstrom swirling upward till it breaks with a chorus of exulting cries as gladdening to the ear as is the sight of those aerial manoeuvres to the eye. The final impression which the downs leave on the mind is, I repeat, one of freedom and space, and this is felt by the flower-lover as strongly as by any wanderer on these hills, these blossoming places in the wilderness, as Mr. Hudson has called them, which make the thought of our trim, pretty, artificial gardens a weariness. End of chapter 6